We'll continue our study in Genesis chapter 13. If you want to turn away back to the first book of the Bible, we'll pick up our story of Abraham. And this morning we are interest introduced more fully to Lot. Genesis chapter 13. And so we shift our attention this morning to Abraham, Abram's nephew, Lot. And last time we saw in Abram's life an evidence of a life that was right with God in light, we begin to see the evidence of a light that is not walking with God. In Abraham, we saw a desire to resolve conflict that came to be between Abram's herd keepers and herdsmen and lots as well. And in that desire to resolve conflict, we also saw Abram extending a preferential grace, allowing Lot to choose first as he, in order to graze his herd. So let's pick it up in verse 7 here and read through verse 13 in our context this morning. Verse 7, And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted, up, lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Well, we had seen Abram's preferential treatment of Lot, and here we see in verse 10, Lot making his decision. As Abram deferred to Lot the choice of where to bring their herds, um, Lot gets to make the decision. And we have to ask ourselves, as you approach this passage, was Lot's decision the right decision? Was it a decision led by God or was it a decision based in the selfishness of our flesh? And that's what we see as we progress through the story of Lot. His decision was centered in himself. You know, and maybe the right decision for Lot would have been to defer to his senior, to Abram, especially in consideration that God had promised to make of him a great nation and to give to him the land. But we did not see that, do we? We see some indicators of the basis of a wrong decision. Now, first of all, we see in verse 10 that Lot lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, the cities of the plain and the lush valleys. And that reminds us of the passage in 1 John chapter 2 where the Bible reminds us that one of the aspects of our luster, our fleshly nature, is the lust of the eyes, having to do with materialistic lust, the lust of the eyes. And, and in the context, as we continue, it appears that's what Lot did. He behold the the good and the best. And then he chose the best for himself. Just the opposite of what Abram did. We see evidence in Abram's life that he was, he was behave, behaving in a godly manner. And here we see Lot giving no consideration to prayer, no deference to his senior, no consideration of God's will. He just says, this is what, this, this, this is what I'm going to choose. And then we see in verses 12 and 13 that he settled near the nightlife. Sodom and Gomorrah, where all the action was taking place. And that reminds us in 1 John 2.15 that 
But one of the other aspects of the lust of the lust of our nature is the lust of the flesh, sensual lust. And it appears as you go through the story of Lot that appealed to him. He moved as far as the cities of the plain. He didn't just take the lush valleys and stay away from those ungodly cities. He pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. He moved to that area. And when you consider the rest of the story in Scripture, we see that this decision he makes here to move in that direction led to disaster. We see the behavior of Lot in chapter 19 and as God seeks to rescue him being despicable. He's, he's, he's as a righteous person, he's identified in 1 Peter chapter 2. He is, he is according to 1 Peter 2, he's oppressed and his righteous soul was tormented in observing and seeing and hearing all the ungodly deeds of the wicked. He had really gone downhill. And so that choice he had made in verse 13, as he continues the story, was, was not a choice in pursuit of the will of God. It really pictures for us a bad choice, a choice made selfishly, made as an expression of our, our flesh that all began in chapter 13. Or excuse me, this part of chapter 13, when he chose to move to those cities. And what's interesting in this context, we see that God here mentions the atmosphere of Sodom and Gomorrah, the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were wicked cities. They, they, they were identified here in the context of Lot's decision as ungodly cities. They were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. That's a reminder that sin is against God, first of all, isn't it? It always is. David recognized that in his confession, didn't he, in Psalm 51, when he says, even though he had harmed others, in his sin, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. That's where sin begins. It's always first against God. And Lot chose to associate with those people. That was his decision. That's what he moved towards. He moved towards this, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's interesting that we might also note that God considers these cities very wicked. When you get to Genesis chapter 18, he calls them wicked cities. And... And in this context, we can't help but recognize that there's no question that God condemns the sin of homosexuality. There is no doubt about it. Christianity isn't subject to the progressive thoughts of the day. God makes it perfectly clear, not only in these passages, but others, as well as Romans chapter 1, where the sin of homosexuality is condemned by God. However, we must remember that God still loves the sinner. God loves those who have sinned. And though God condemns the sin, he loves the sinner. And that reminds me of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. And the verses that follow that, that verse, in verses 17 and 18, says that God did not send his world into the Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not why Jesus came. And I think that's really illustrative for us. I love the story to go back to the woman who's taken in adultery. And after all, Jesus manages to dispatch all her accusers. She, he says, she asked, do you condemn me? And he says, he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What an expression of grace. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. God is in the business of rescuing people, including those who are living in sin. And all of us, had, were living in sin before we came to know Christ. And that's why the answer for all sinners is the same. We come just as we are. 
including those who are caught up in a moral lifestyle. That's why whosoever will may come. God does not reform sinners before he saves them. He saves them in order to rescue them. That's the grace of God, including me and the rest of us here today. In fact, Galatians 3.26 tells us that we become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It is once we are related to him, once we become his children, once we are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that God begins to conform and reform our lives. God never condones a lifestyle, just like he doesn't condone lying, cheating, impatient, or violent tempers, or fill-in-the-blank type of sins. But he saves sinners. He rescues them through the blood of Jesus as they come to him in simple faith. And so we come to God the same way, as undeserving sinners, saved by grace through faith, with nothing to offer, no power to change, and often unaware that our sins are an offense to God. You know, really, that's part of the process that's going on here this morning. We're here because there's areas of our lives that we maybe aren't even aware are an offense to God. Because we are blind and self-deceived. But it's the light of the word of God that exposes the darkness in our hearts that God can deal with one piece at a time, one step at a time, one item at a time, until we go to be with the Lord. And that's why Paul said in Philippians 4, I haven't attained. I'm not already perfect. But I'm forgetting what's behind. I'm pressing forth to that which is before. He knew God had the responsibility of molding and making and changing him. And that's going to continue, the Bible says, until the day of redemption. 2 Timothy 3 indicates to us that the Word of God is inspired and it's given for instruction and for teaching and for reproof and correction that the man of God might be perfected, matured for every good work. And that's the process going on yet today. And so God doesn't reform sinners, expect them to reform. And that's why as Christians, we don't take a stand against homosexuals. We take a stand against homosexuality. It is unbiblical. And, those are, and they're simply sinners who need to be saved just like the rest of us. And, and whosoever will may come. Well, I'll get off that side note. Back to Lot. We, what we see here in Lot is a picture of the flesh. In fact, Abraham, Abraham and Lot, really, if you really want to look at it, we see a picture of a godly life in the first part of chapter 13. Abraham's behaving in a godly manner. We saw that last time. And with Lot, we begin to see a man who is operating in the flesh. And it pictures for us, if we can use it for an illustration this morning, the two natures of man, of the believer. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Turn with me, if you will, back to Romans chapter 8. In fact, we're going to stop at chapter 7, first of all. And we need to realize, as people, that our nature, our natural nature, our natural inclinations are towards sin. We have a nature that has a propensity to sin. That's why we don't teach our itsy-bitsies how to disobey. We don't teach them right out of the cradle a, a disobedience course, how to say no, how to slap you, and how to rebel. It comes as standard equipment, doesn't it? That's our nature. It's called in the Bible various things. It's called the carnal man. It's called the flesh. It's called the old man. And that's, and, and, and that's something we have to come to grips with. And as believers, we don't lose that old man. We are given new life in Christ, but we still have the ability to sin, the capacity to sin, in fact, the propensity to sin, and I hope you real realize that by now. We still sin, don't we, in our lives? And that's explainable. It is because we retain a nature that is, is sinful. Look at Romans 7, verse 21. Here, 
where it says, I find then a law, that means a principle, a dynamic in my life, that evil is present with me, even when I want to do good. Paul says that, that was his discovery in this chapter. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I love God's word and God's will, but I see another law, principle, dynamic, in my members. That's in my body. It's warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And so he identifies this law as the law of sin, the principle of sin which dwells within us, and it's at war with the spirit. There is spiritual warfare going on in our hearts and lives. It's a basic principle that we often forget, but it explains why our children rebel. It explains why we still fail and sin as believers. I fear sometimes that when the world looks for psychological reasons, for the reasons people sin in their lives, they fail to recognize that we have a nature that's rebellious. It's naturally rebellious and independent. That's what the Bible tells us. And as believers... We have two natures, two inclinations. One, the new life we have in Christ called the new man, called the new nature, called the life of Christ. And we have the old man, and we have a choice to make. Verse 24 says, Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm a Christian, but I'm still sinning. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he gives the answer, I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Then we get to chapter 8. And it begins to tell us how to enjoy the victory God has provided. We recognize that on the cross, when he says it's through Jesus Christ our Lord, it's through Jesus Christ that we have the basis for victory because he won the victory on the cross, didn't he? He rose from the dead and he offers to us the power of his resurrection in our lives. And so Christ freed us from that law of sin. He broke the power of sin on the cross. That's what Romans 6 is all about, by the way. It's about freedom from sin. But to enjoy that freedom, we need help, don't we? And that's why if we could jump down to verse 5, it tells us how to tap into that power, how to experience that help. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And so he introduces to us this idea of occupation with the flesh versus occupation with the Spirit. We live in the power of the flesh or the power of the spirit. And the difference is, is what has our attention. What is the basis for reason? What governs our thoughts, attitudes, and opinions? Is it our fleshly nature, which always puts me first? Or is it the spirit of God? One Bible, the Net Bible, says, says, states verse 5 this way. Those who live according to the flesh have their outlook shaped by the flesh. Have their outlook shaped. And so on one hand, in one nuance of the word, we have the idea that the difference in our lives is are we occupied with the flesh? Is it our occupation as it was with lots? That's what he gazed. That's what he longed for. That's what he moved towards. But also, we have the other nuance of the word in that it shapes our outlook, our perspectives in life. And so we need to be aware in our lives of this battle and and. and, and and utilize the resources God has given us here primarily in the Spirit of God for victory. Because it goes on to say, to be carnally minded, verse 6, is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And so we're to be occupied, focused on, set our minds on the things of the Spirit. How do you do that? 
I think it's pretty basic, isn't it? And we always seem to get back to basics. Here we talk about the Christian life, but it has to do with our relationship with God and his word. Meditation and, and prayer on the word of God. That's how we set our minds. And we start every day, we can either set our mind, set our course for the day on, on our fleshly perspectives and desires and objectives, or we can start the day saying, as Paul said on the Damascus Road when he was converted, Lord, what will you have me to do? Set our minds on the things of God. And I hope you've noticed by now in your Christian life, those of you who have been saved for a while, that what you focus on first thing of the day often, often charts the course for the day. If you leave out the Lord, chances are you're going to continue that throughout the day. But if you start in some measure with the word and in prayer and drawing near your Savior, it'll help you to keep your mind there. Because it's where you set your minds. And there's things throughout the day that can grab our attention, distract us, and lead us in the wrong direction. But that's what God says here, that if we live according, according to the Spirit, if we set our minds on the things of God, we can enjoy life, the victory in life and the abundant life that God has provided for us. Well, people, this is so much more than just legalistic Christianity, a series of do's and don'ts and things to avoid. This is about a relationship. Setting our minds on the things of the Spirit is to be thrilled with our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to be in His Word and see His beauty and His glory. You know, sometimes we study a passage like this, and this might seem, pastor's getting a little theological this morning, a little technical this morning, but it's really a description of the beauty of God's provision for us to enjoy victory. The Word of God is, is full of wonder and beauty and joy, and God has given us a resource that we might enjoy the new life we have in Christ, and it starts with something very simple. Set our minds on the things of the Spirit. It's very simple and very attainable. And it's something we grow in, isn't it, as we grow in life. Well, as we consider Lot, we recognize that the decisions he made, which, which appear to be fleshy decisions because of the progress or digression, if you prefer, of his life. But those things often have far-reaching consequences, don't they? You know, we're told in Galatians chapter 6 that if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap of the flesh. We're going to experience spiritual destruction. And unless we come to a point where we respond to the conviction and, and discipline of God the Spirit and we turn to Him in repentance, confession, life will continue to decline. And I can't help but wonder, and this is just my interjection, when we get to Genesis 19, when, Lot, when you find Lot in a dark place, when he's offering up his daughters to the men who want to experience sexual relationships with his guests, that's a dark place. I wonder if Lot wondered, how did I get here? Because people do that. How did I get here? When we finally maybe wake up a little bit, how did I get here? And I think that happens more often than we realize in the lives even of believers. And sometimes instead of getting realizing that Wherever it started, it started because I did not consider the Lord. I did not set my minds on the things of the Lord. I didn't make my decisions based on thus saith the Lord. But you know what I run into a lot? I run into believers who justify the path they've taken. I've known believers through the years who have drifted off into carnal directions, made really bad decisions, come back to the Lord years later hallelujah but oftentimes I hear him say this well that's the path God would have me to take and I think absolutely not it's never the will of God 
to teach us through disobedience and rebellion. Never. No, God will teach us. What he teaches us is don't live like that. That's, that's about it. This is the wrong way to live. We may learn something. We learn what we ought not to do. But it's never God's path. And that to me is just a justification. Well, you know, I was a little wrong. But God kind of had me take me through that path to get where I am today. And I think to myself, well, maybe you're not in a very good place today because you haven't really seen that was not God's perfect will in your life. So, so we justify it. That happens too often in our lives. Instead of just being humble and being honest and saying, you know, I blew it. I was wrong. And that's the delight of David's confession when he finally quit trying to avoid it when he says, I have sinned. That's where God wants us to get, isn't it? But instead, you know what we see in Lot? We see somebody reluctantly being dragged out of Sodom. In fact, when God wants to take him to the mountains, he says, no, I'm going to live in the city again. So he picks another city to live in. And the great tragedy through it all is that maybe Lot thought he apparently could survive the environment, not participate, whatever, Along the way, he lost his wife and son-in-laws, didn't he? Because of his decisions. Where did it start? Well, right back in Genesis chapter 13. With a longing gaze at the world. With a move towards the cities of the nightlife. A prayerless and selfish, self-serving decision to take the best for himself. And in the process exposed him and his family to the worst of the world. You know, there's... And by way of an application, there's really two aspects of spiritual protection that God provides for us. To protect us from sin and from self. Because we know that our flesh loves the world. It has an affinity with the world. It appeals to us. It does. We're just, that's just being honest. That's our flesh. But first of all, we need the simple thing is to re, is be determined to make decisions that are directed by God. When Galatians 3.11 says the just shall live by faith... It means that we're making faith decisions based on the light of God's word. That's we have to be our determination. And our prayers ought to be as God, when I where I am wrong, show me. That's what it means to set our minds on things above. The determination that every step is lighted by the by the word of God, and where it's not, make the adjustments as God teaches us. The second aspect is related to that. Is we need to respond to the conviction that our faithful God brings when we are not aligned with his word in our lives. There needs to be not only a reluctant type of humility, okay, God, if you insist, I guess I'll have to change. No, it means a recognition that in my flesh dwells no good thing, and that I can be easily self-deceived. And I don't even know the depths of my heart, the Bible tells me. And God in his faithfulness is the one who teaches us through teaching that brings conviction when we move in a wrong direction, when we adopt a wrong perspective, when we establish a wrong priority, when we move in a wrong behavior or enter into a wrong behavior, those are all expressions of the flesh. And sometimes we're like everyone else. We don't see anything wrong with it. But God in his faithfulness will bring us conviction. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. He, he faithfulness will one day at a time, one step at a time, teach and discipline us. And so we need to respond. Humbly. Willingly and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you showed me, me, that you taught me the right way, that you showed me Jesus and the way he lives 
and the way I ought to live. Hebrews chapter 12, this passage on divine discipline, verse 5 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? This is normal for children. My son or child, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Nor be discouraged with your rebuke by him. Don't be discouraged for the Lord, whom the Lord loves, he chases. He scourges every son whom he receives. We're to be thankful, not discouraged, when God chastens us. When he brings conviction in our lives and chastening, often is the thing that follows unresponded to conviction in our lives. God often convicts us, but we don't always get it. And so he has to bring discipline. And it comes in various forms. And I'm not going to figure out how God disciplines you. I know how he disciplines me. At least I think I do. I probably don't see half of it. But verse 7 says, if you endure chastening, endure. That means go through the process. If you take it as from God, then God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? A loving father always corrects and chastens his children to keep them on the right path because God gave parents to children because children are born with a propensity to disobey and rebel. And that's why we have parents. And, that's, and one of the tools in parenting is this idea of teaching and training and chastening. Verse 8, if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now, none of us want that. But when God disciplines us, we can say thank you because what he's doing is keeping us from running out in the street in front of a car. That's what he's doing. He's delivering us from sin and self. And we need to respond. And when he barks stop in his word, we got to stop in our tracks and say thank you, Lord. I didn't see that semi coming that was going to run over my life. Verse 9 illustrates it. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? How much more our Heavenly Father? You know, sometimes kids justify reasons not to obey their parents because of their inconsistencies or their failures or their shortcomings. But how much more? I love that word, how much more? We have a perfect Heavenly Father which always has our best in mind has undertaken a process to conform us to Christ, and part of that is correction. And if we are in subjection to him, we'll live. And to be in subjection means to say, thank you, Lord, I needed that. For they, verse 10, indeed, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. I think the old King James says, for their profit. And some fathers discipline because you cross them, not always because they love you and what's best for you. But in contrast to our failures as fathers, he always disciplines for our profit. Isn't that love? God doesn't discipline just because you made him look bad, because you damaged the family name, or because he had his feet up watching the stars, enjoying the night sky, and you interrupted his solitude, whatever. Always for our profit. It's for our good. It's one of the things that God has given us is the conviction of his word in the hands of his spirit and the discipline that accompanies it to keep us from moving in a wrong direction. So it's for our profit, and the objective is that we might be partakers of his holiness. That's all God wants. And that's the best place we can be. In fact, if you pray for each other, this is a, this is a prayer. Pray that I'll be partakers of God's holiness. That's what God wants in our lives. He wants us to walk with him, 
to enjoy his righteousness and goodness in our lives. You know, we like to pray for, you know, the, the, the wart on the end of the nose or some big, the corn on my big toe to get healed or whatever. But, you know, the spiritual aspect of life is that God desires that we walk with him. And that's wonderful. It's a privilege to be partakers of his holiness as he produces his life in us. Now, no chastening seems to be joyous for the present. <laughs> we know what that's like. But painful. God knows it's painful. He knows it is. And if you have compassion or had compassion, if you're an empty nester like me, on your kids when you had to discipline them, how much more painful was to God to have to put us through this? He knows it's painful, and I think he identifies with that pain. But it was necessary. Nevertheless, it says, afterwards it yields the, yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we see kind of a parallel in verse 10. Partaking of his holiness is to enjoy the fruit of righteousness in our lives. To live right. That's what God wants. But it's a peaceable fruit. And that's a wonderful phrase, isn't it? It's good to be right. It's peaceable to be right with God. So often the lack of peace in our lives simply comes because we might be like Lot. We might be making intelligent, good decisions for me. But are we doing it for the Lord? Are we right with our God? Are we moving in a direction to honor our God? That's the one and only place we'll find peace. It's peaceable to live righteously. And just like a kid, you know, when you get in trouble and you don't want dad to find out, and dad comes home from work and your stomach is just doing backflips inside because he might find out what happened, how much more right it is for us to be right with our God as we walk with him. And one of the tools that God uses to get us there is discipline, is conviction. And so we have the word of God, which tells us how we ought to live. When we do not respond or do not see it for ourselves, God brings conviction, his teaching, and discipline so that we could be exercised to godliness. Verse 12, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. You know, body language is often a picture of what's in the heart, isn't it? That's all Paul's identifying here. And though you may not always show it on the, on the outside, of course, when you're my age, the hands hang down and knees are feeble, whether you're right with the Lord or not. So it's not always an indicator, but the picture is there of what's on the inside. He says, you don't need to live defeated lives. You don't need to live in with a lack of peace that results from independent living from God. Instead, you can enjoy straight paths, verse 13, Make straight paths. Straight paths are always God's paths, aren't they not? And that goes back to the Bible, which lights our path. We're back to that principle again. And, and so that which is lame may not be dislocated, may not cripple us for long term, instead be healed. Well, I don't know, and we don't see in the Bible the work God may have been doing in Lot's heart, because he is called a righteous man in Peter, to keep him from moving in the wrong direction. But whatever discipline or instruction may have come, he became lame. He was crippled. And sometimes decisions that begin with something simple in our lives, a lack of considering the Lord can lead us in a, in a crippling manner in our lives. And so the choice is the right path. And these two basic resources, 
our relationship to the word, to the conviction it brings, and the discipline that God gives are essential. I couldn't help but think of Psalm 119, where the psalmist mentions this. In verse 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71 says, It is good for me that I've been afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Verse 75 says this, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now, none of us want to go before the throne of grace and say, God, take out the, the, the spoon or the belt or whatever method. But we recognize when God does, he does so in faithfulness, in love. That's the joy of God's conviction, God's correction, God's discipline, is he has one thing in mind. He wants his children to, be, to live peaceably, to have peace in their hearts, enjoy in their lives. And that comes from a right relationship which begins with, the first of all, a surrender to God's word. Abram, in the first part of chapter 13, had a very peaceable existence for that period of time at least. When he, did, when he drew near to God and when he lived God's way, when he deferred the decision and preferring Lot ahead of himself, Lot started on a path of destruction, lack of peace, lack of joy, and ended up lame in his spiritual life. Our decisions are important. And though this is a simple message this morning, it reminds us of the importance of Setting our minds on the things of God. Allowing his word to direct our steps. You know, and God will bring that. Sometimes he brings it through teaching. Sometimes he may bring it through my own personal reading, meditation, and prayer. Sometimes in the life of another believer, by example. But God, in faithfulness, will lead us and teach us and afflict us when necessary so that we can be partakers of his holiness. It's a place we're created to be. It's a place we ought to be. It's a place we're going to be for all eternity when we get out of this, out of the presence of sin. But it's a place God could lead us each and every day if we willingly respond to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a faithful God. And Father, for honest before you this morning, we, need, we absolutely need your instruction. We sang that song earlier, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. And so Father, may we recognize that every hour we need to set our minds on the things of God. We need to occupy our thinking, allow it to shape our outlook, to direct our steps. And Father, when it does not, we're thankful that you are a faithful God. You in faithfulness will afflict us, will discipline us as your children in love for our profit so that we could be partakers of your holiness, so that we could enjoy the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Father, these are glorious privileges we have. May we not forfeit them in apathetic, sloppy, self-centered living. And Father, may we be taught to walk by faith and dependence upon you so we can enjoy the glory of your presence every day. So apply these things now to our lives. Help us to understand them. Help us to put them in practice by your power, in your grace, and for your glory. In Jesus' name.